So let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's hard for me to relate to you just how impressed I am with this uh, chapter. It is, uh, this is choice, choice uh, stuff out of God's word. And it's, I'm rarely uh, at a loss for words, but this is one of those times because this is a, an awesome chapter. The best way is for us to just jump in at verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, Paul, in this letter of 2 Corinthians, has just contrasted our light affliction with a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Matter of fact, why don't we just look at those uh, verses at the very end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. At 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, he, re- he writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, coming into chapter 5, Paul will talk more about this contrast between the earthly and the eternal. I mean, we're well aware of God's uh, work in our lives on this earth. But many times we lose sight of God's plan and his destiny for us in eternity. And I want you to notice something that as we begin this, we're not talking about mere speculation or things that we can just kind of guess about. Do you see the first few words of chapter 5? He says, For we know, we know, the things that Paul is going to deal with about the eternal state, about the world beyond, about heaven to come, these are things we know. We're not guessing, we're not hoping, we're not casting pie in the sky kind of wishes. These are things that we know. Christians can know that the world beyond is greater than this world and know some of the characteristics of it. Because we know what God's eternal word says. The first thing he says about this, if you notice in verse 1 of chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. In other words, he thinks of our present bodies, this flesh and blood body that each one of us inhabit, he thinks of our bodies as tents. Now you know what a tent is, right? A tent is a temporary structure. Nobody plans on living in a tent permanently. You live in a tent because it can be moved around from place to place. It's not a permanent dwelling. But Paul thinks of our bodies as a tent. It's a temporary structure, but it can't be thought of as the whole person. Because even if the tent is destroyed, we still have an eternal hope. My friends, you have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, waiting for you. So Paul says one day that this tent will be destroyed. He uses the very same word. That word destroyed was a word used in the original Greek language for striking down a tent. And one day God will strike the tent and will receive a new building from God. It's a place to live in throughout all eternity. You know, there's a lot of people worried about the future. 
take a look at our present time, at the years ahead, at the decades ahead. They take a look at culture and society and technology and all these. And they're worried about a lot of different things. But friends, you can be in a great fright about the future. But I'm here to tell you, Paul is looking about the worst thing that can happen to you in the future, right? You die. You're dead. I don't want to put it in such stark terms, but you, you leave here tonight. And you're involved in a terrible traffic collision. And you're dead. What does Paul say? Hey, man, just like a tent being struck down and you move into a new building that God has for you in heaven. Now, this means that we are more than our bodies. Our bodies are but a tent. We're going to leave these bodies aside and we're going to take up a more permanent dwelling in heaven one day. We are more than our bodies. And this explains why Paul could consider all the pain, all the discomfort in his body a light affliction, as he mentions at the end of chapter 4. That's why it's a light affliction to Paul, because what does it compare to the eternal weight of glory? Now, if we say that our bodies are but tents that we live in, so to speak, it's a mistake to say, my body isn't me. Your body is you. But the problem is, is it's not all of you. It's part of you. There's much more to me than my body. There's much more to you than your flesh and blood makeup. And one day God will transition you into your heavenly body. Now, our future bodies, Paul tells us in verse 1, are not made with hands. He describes it as a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. God especially makes our bodies to suit The environment of eternity in heaven, they are eternal in the heavens. Now, do you know Jesus spoke about this? Do you remember in John chapter 14, verse 2? He said, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, in the literal Greek, somebody will say, listen, mansions, that's a very poor translation. That's not a mansion at all. In the literal Greek, the word just means a dwelling place or a place to stay. And I suppose if you want to get technical, according to Greek vocabulary and Greek grammar, the word translated mansions there just literally means a place to stay. But friends, knowing the character of our God, any place to stay he puts him up in eternally is a mansion. And when it says a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal heavens, God has a mansion for you in heaven. Friends, this building from God, this house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, will be a glorious place to stay. It's going to be a mansion for all eternity. You want to know how you can know it? Because Jesus has been preparing that place for us since he ascended into heaven. That's one of the things he's been doing in heaven, preparing your mansion, getting it ready for you. No, 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 this world is pretty good as far as God's uh, ability as it's shown in it in power and creation. He did that in six days. He's been up preparing a place for you for 2,000 years. It's going to be glorious, my friends. This reminds us here that salvation isn't only for the soul or the spirit, but it's also for the body also. Resurrection is how God saves our bodies. We will have a glorious new body to come. Friends, as you get older and you... You know, you, you, you see your body not quite as, as uh, you know, working as well as it used to. And then you look ahead in the year and say, look, I'm still a young man and this is happening to me. You know, it doesn't look to get any better as time goes on. 
You start thinking, man, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We've got a glorious new body to come, and, and, and God has that for us. And, and just as we long for it, well, Paul expresses that longing in verse 2. He says, For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Paul says, for in this we groan. Christians are groaning because we see, number one, the limitations of this body. And number two, we see the superiority of the body to come. We're earnestly desiring our new bodies, our heavenly destiny. We want it. We groan for it. Let's be honest. Many Christians are not earnestly desiring heaven. They don't. I wonder if it's because we're often just so comfortable on earth. You know, it isn't that we should seek out affliction. But neither should we dedicate our lives to the pursuit of comfort. Friends, there's nothing wrong with earnestly desiring heaven. There's something right about being able to agree with Paul here and say, I want to go to heaven and I am groaning until I get there. I want to be with you, Lord. Matter of fact, he says, earnestly desiring to be clothed. And then having big clothed, we shall not be naked. Paul is simply saying that in eternity, we will be clothed and we will not be naked, so to speak. In other words, we won't be bodiless spirits. We won't be ghosts in heaven. We won't be apparitions, spirits just flitting about here and there. We are going to have bodies of some type. We will not be disembodied spirits. Now, this is interesting, and it's a lot more relevant to the world Paul was writing in than in our own day, because the Greek philosophers of Paul's day thought that to be a bodiless spirit was the highest level of existence. They thought that all matter, everything tangible, everything material was inherently evil or corrupt. And so they thought that the highest level of existence was to be a bodiless spirit. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not our desire at all. The Greeks thought that the body was a prison for the soul. And they saw no advantage of just being resurrected into another body. But to God, the body itself is not a negative. The problem is not in the body itself. You know where the problem is? It's in our sin-corrupted bodies, the fallen bodies that we live in. Do you realize that Jesus approved the essential goodness of our bodies by becoming a man? If there was something inherently evil in the body, then Jesus could have never added humanity to his deity. And friends, there's nothing inherently evil in the body except in our fallen, corrupted bodies. And one day, God is going to give us a super deluxe trade-in model, eternal glory in the head. It's like, it's like driving in your old wrecked-up car and God giving you a Rolls-Royce or a, or a Lamborghini or something like that. He goes, man, here you are. Much, much better than you ever had. Matter of fact, Paul says here, it's not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. As Christians, we have no desire to be pure spirit and to escape the body. Instead, we are earnestly desiring to have a perfect resurrected body. 
Now, friends, you might, well, say, I, what's that going to be like? I mean, it's going to be like our body, but not like our body. It's going to be tangible, but yet it's going to have, you know, powers and abilities. That our body, I, I don't understand how it works. And can I just say, we really don't know a whole lot about the exact state and nature of our resurrected body. And if you really press me on it, you go, well, tell me, tell me. I, I just give you the answer that John Bunyan gave to a man who, who asked him. John Bunyan, that famous writer of the book Pilgrim's Progress, one man asked John a question that he couldn't answer because it just wasn't spoken about in God's Word. So John Bunyan didn't know. God's Word didn't talk about it. And so John said to the guy, well, listen, I'll tell you what you do. Live a godly life the rest of your days. Go to heaven and see for yourself. That's your answer. And you know, you want to talk about the exact nature of our heavenly bodies? I don't know. Live a godly life. Follow the Lord Jesus the rest of your days. Go to heaven and then you'll find out. But it's waiting for us, friends. We know that. And we know the glorious result of it. If you look at verse 4, he says that mortality may be swallowed up in life. Our new bodies will not be subject to death. That is mortality. Instead, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. When we receive our eternal bodies, life completely conquers death. You know, I thought of this uh, mortality may be swallowed up in life. I I thought of of a snake swallowing up a mouse. And that mouse is completely conquered. It is no more. That mouse is just, it's absorbed and said, there's nothing there anymore. And friends, mortality or death will be swallowed up in life. We're going to be clothed. We're going to be clothed in the eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're going to have a heavenly body perfectly suited to our eternal destiny. Friends, Jesus offers us a superior garment for going to heaven. You know, in medieval times, some Christians who had never been monks their whole life, I mean, they had never been in a monastery or anything, but some people who wanted to be going to heaven and make an impression on God, they would be buried in a monk's habit, in a monk's clothing, so that when they got to the pearly gates, God would think they were a monk their whole life. See, I'm wearing the clothes, God, right? Can I just tell you, it's not going to cut it. God has a better garment for you, a garment given to you, an eternal body that you can live in forever. Now he goes on here, verse 5. He says, now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In other words, God is preparing us right now for our eternal destiny. Right now, he's preparing you. Do you understand that? God is preparing you now for your eternal destiny. Remember a great story illustrating this uh, about a man who was in the middle of many, many painful trials. He he decided one day he just needed to get out of the house and clear his mind. So he took a walk in the neighborhood and he saw a construction crew at work on a big church. And so he had nothing to do and he just wanted to get his mind off his problem. So he just sat there and he watched the men work. And he watched this one particular man, a stone craftsman. And the craftsman was just sitting there out in the street working a long time on a block. And there he was, chipping away, slightly, slightly chipping it just perfectly, and he'd measure and he'd that, and calculate. He was working very intensely on this block for an hour and just sitting there and shaping it. And the man looked, he looked at the church, and the church was almost finished, and he couldn't figure, what's he doing? It just looks like he's amusing himself, and he's chipping, chipping away and just shaping this. So finally, the man just started to get a little annoyed. What's this guy doing? And so he asked, well, what are you doing there? And the stone craftsman looked at him, and he and he pointed up to, to the top of the church steeple where there was a little empty spot. And he just simply said, he said, I, I'm shaping it down here so that it'll fit in up there. 
And God just instantly spoke to the man through those words. And he said, that's exactly what I'm doing in your life. I'm chipping away. I'm shaping. I'm carving in you down here so that you will fit in up there. We are being prepared, Paul says. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, friends, when our trials are hard on earth, it can be hard to take comfort in our heavenly destiny. God knew this. So you know what he did? He has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Right now, guarantee, money back offer. Here it is. It's guaranteed in the Lord. You receive the Holy Spirit, and that is your guarantee of your heavenly destiny. Absolutely no doubt about it. God has backed up the promise of heaven with a down payment right now, the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, that word guarantee uses a specific Greek word that describes a pledge or a partial payment that required a future payment, but gave the one receiving it a guaranteed legal claim to the goods in question. Guaranteed. It's like receiving an engagement ring. It's a guarantee of something to come. And friends, I just have to ask you a simple question. Have you experienced small or great blessing from the Holy Spirit in your life right now? Now think about it. Have you been touched by the Holy Spirit of God? Has he been moving in your life? That is a guarantee of your future eternal destiny. And friends, has it been glorious? Has it been glorious what the Spirit of God has done in your life? I don't even, I'm not even, let's say right now you're in a dry time. Well, then think back. Think back to some marvelous time when the Spirit of God touched your life. That was glorious, wasn't it? You just look back on it and you go, yeah, yeah. Friends, that's just a down payment. That's just a down payment. Can you imagine what the whole gift will be like? That's what God has for us in heaven. Spurgeon said, so the Holy Spirit is a part of heaven itself. The work of the Holy Spirit in the soul is the bud of heaven Grace is not a thing which will be taken away from us when we enter glory, but will develop into glory. Grace will not be withdrawn as though it had answered its purpose, but it will be matured into glory. Friends, you see, when you make this kind of down payment, you don't take the down payment away when you get to heaven. We're going to have a richness of the Spirit of God greater than we ever could know when we're in heaven. Therefore, Paul says, did you notice this? Oh, this is great. In verse 6, therefore, we are Always confident, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. The presence of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life gave him confidence. It gave him an assurance that God was working in him and that God would continue his work. Friends, tonight, can you say of yourself that you are always confident? Can you say that? If you can't, then ask God for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. We can always be confident, even in hard times, if we keep a passage like Colossians 3.2 in our minds, where he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Friends, that's the way to maintain peace in your soul. That's the way to not be lifted up too high in a time of prosperity, or not to be cast down too low in adversity or doubts or fears. That's because you shouldn't learn how to live on the things outside of you. You shouldn't learn how to live on the things inside of you. You should learn how to live on the things above you in heaven. That's what Paul says. 
We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Right now, that the presence of God is distant from us in some sense. That's why Paul says in verses 7 and 8, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Friends, there is a sense in which the presence of God in our lives is a matter of faith right now. We are at home in the body. So there's a sense in which we are absent from the Lord, at least in the sense of His immediate, glorious presence. So right now, we must walk by faith and not by sight. That's one of the great, should I say, difficult principles of the Christian life, to walk by faith and not by sight. It must amaze the angels that we live for and serve and are willing to die for a God we have never seen. They see him all the time. They know. And it just must blow their minds that we'll obey and suffer and, and work for and love and live for God we've never seen living by faith, not by you see what Paul says? You know, he could have used all different kinds of words here. He could have said, we conquer by faith. We uh, defeat the whole world by faith. We do this by faith. But what do you say? We walk by faith. That's kind of mundane, isn't it? That's everyday stuff. Walking is nothing remarkable in itself. It's just one of the more everyday aspects of life. But God wants you and I to walk by faith. Well, I can serve the Lord by faith. I can preach a sermon by faith. I can uh, do this by faith. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, he asks, yeah, but can you, can you cook a good dinner by faith? Can you, can you work hard at your job by faith? Can you do this by faith? Can you do the everyday things? Spurgeon said, I mean, can you perform the common actions of the household and the daily duties which fall to your lot in the spirit of faith? That's what God calls each one of us to do. Live every aspect of our life in this faith. But friends, the day will come when we will no longer be absent from the body or absent from the Lord in the sense that Paul means it here. On that day, we're not going to have to walk by faith anymore, but we're going to see the glory and the presence of God. That day is coming. Matter of fact, Paul goes on and he says, if you notice here in verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Because Paul is confident. Now, why is he confident? In one reason he's confident is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Because he's confident of his eternal destiny, he is not afraid of the world beyond. Matter of fact, Paul says he would be well pleased to be absent from the body, and to be present with the Lord. Now, this text deals with a question that's on the minds of many people. What happens to believers when they die? I mean, Christians are going to leave these bodies and be resurrected in new bodies and be with the Lord. Plainly speaking, to be absent from the body means that we will be present with the Lord. But here's where some people raise a question. Some people wonder if when we get to heaven, 
Will we live for a time in an intermediate, bodiless state awaiting the resurrection? In other words, the resurrection uh, of people in the rapture of the church and and the dead in Christ being caught up with Christ, uh, to our vision right now, that hasn't happened yet, of course. We know it hasn't happened for us, and to our vision, it hasn't happened for the dead in Christ either. And some people think that that's exactly what's going to happen, that, well, if you die now, you go to heaven, you kind of live in this disembodied spirit state until the time of resurrection, and then you receive your resurrection body. But, you know, Paul seems to regard such a bodiless state as undesirable here. And so we can say that either the present dead in Christ are with the Lord in a spiritual body awaiting their final resurrection, or more probably because of the timeless nature of eternity, they have received their resurrection bodies because they already live in the eternal now. In other words, when we pass from time to eternity, right now we look at the rapture of the church, at the resurrection of the dead, and we say, well, it's not here today, it's in the future. But in heaven, in eternity, there is no future. There is no past. Everything is now. So you get to heaven, and you know what? It's, well, it's the day of the resurrection. There you go. Well, no, it's not happened yet, but wait, uh, well, no, you you understand, right? If you understand, explain it to me, because I don't, but but I know that that something's going to happen when we pass from time to eternity, and we know that Paul says that to be absent from the body means that we will be present with the Lord. Do you know that that proves two doctrines to be false? First of all, it refutes the false doctrine of soul sleep. You ever heard that one? That's the old one that when you die, you're buried, and you just kind of take a little dirt nap. You're in suspended animation. You're just kind of out there until the day of resurrection, and then, you know, God calls your body forth, and then you regain consciousness or something. Your soul is asleep. But friends, if that's true, then Paul was wrong here, because you're absent from the body. You're not present with the Lord. He'd say to be absent from the body means you're six feet under, under a clod of dirt until the day of resurrection. Not present with the Lord. That's one false doctrine that Paul just blows out of the water here. The other false doctrine is a doctrine some of you may have heard of. The teaching of purgatory. Oh, you know what purgatory is, don't you? That's supposedly a place nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Can I say that again? It's nowhere mentioned in the Bible. But the idea of purgatory, it's at a place where the believing dead must be cleaned up by their own suffering before coming into the presence of God. Let me tell you something. The the doctrine of soul sleep is just kind of silly. The doctrine of purgatory, that's an offense. Because you know what it says? It says that Jesus can't clean you enough. You've got to be cleaned up by your own suffering and pain. Let me tell you something, friends. When Jesus hung on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and said, it is finished, he paid it all. All of it. Spurgeon said of Paul in this passage, he did not expect to be roasted alive for the next thousand years and then leap from purgatory to paradise. But he did expect to go as soon as ever his earthly house was dissolved into his eternal house, which in the heavens. He had not even thought of lying in a state of unconsciousness till the resurrection. And it's true. The idea of soul sleep, false doctrine. The idea of purgatory, false doctrine. 
But it tells us something glorious about heaven, doesn't it? Did you see it there at the end of verse 8? And to be present with the Lord. You know, that's what makes heaven, heaven. We long to be present with the Lord. Now, heaven is precious to us for many reasons, friends. We want to be with loved ones who have passed before us and whom we miss so dearly. We want to be with the great men and women of God who have passed before us in centuries past. We want to walk the streets of gold and see the pearly gates and see the angels around the throne of God worshiping Him day and night. But friends, none of those things, precious as they are, really make heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the unhindered, unrestricted presence of our Lord. The place of heaven would be like hell if it could not be present with the Lord. And that's our great reward in heaven. Now, that's quite an eternal destiny, don't you think? How should that affect how we live right now? God spelled out before you in these first eight verses a glorious destiny for you and I to follow. It's just all spread out. That's where we're going, friends. It's glorious. It's waiting for us. How does it touch our lives right now? Look at verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And Paul plainly says, therefore we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. Do you understand that what we do right now has eternal consequences? Because that's true, our goal must persistently be to please God. That's what Paul says. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. Alexander McLaren said, You report to headquarters. Never mind what anybody else thinks of you. Your business is to please Christ. And the less you trouble yourself about pleasing men, the more you will succeed in doing it. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. Then he says, we'll do it, whether present or absent. Now, there's going to come a day when you're absent from the body and present with the Lord, right? Can I just tell you, you can't do anything about pleasing God then, right now. You've got to wait till then to please God. And then you'll please God then by worshiping Him and serving Him any way He gives you to do. That day hasn't come yet, though. Yet right now, we can do something about pleasing God when we're absent from His immediate presence and present in these bodies. Do you realize, friends, that as far as we know, there are some opportunities for pleasing God that you're only going to have while you're present in these bodies. When we get to heaven, there's going to be no more need for faith. You're not going to need faith in heaven. We say right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. Then you'll walk by sight. You'll see God. You'll see it all. Now you need to walk by faith. When you get to heaven, no more need for endurance through trials. Trials? What's that? But right now, you're privileged to endure through trials. You say, privilege? 
Lord God, take away that privilege from me, please. No, it's a privilege you have. One day it will be taken away from you. One day there will be no more trials to face. Right now, God gives you the privilege of serving him and pleasing him in those circumstances now. There's going to come a day when you're not going to need any courage or boldness to tell people about Jesus. What, there you are in the streets of gold around there and shy talking about Jesus? What, are you kidding me? That's going to be the only thing on the lips of people in heaven. They're going to be talking about our glorious Lord and what he's done in our lives in days past and his glory right now. But right now you have the opportunity to have courage and boldness in telling people about Jesus. Now, while we are present in these bodies, is our only opportunity in all of eternity to please God in these areas. It's going to come a day and you're not going to have that opportunity. So do it now. Why? Because if you do it now, then you'll be approved. If you notice here, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When we pass from these bodies to the world beyond, we must give account for our lives. He says that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, friends, the Bible describes a few different judgments for us. One of them is known as the great white throne judgment, and it's described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. That describes a judgment where basically the damned appear before God's great white throne and receive their sentence. It's a terrible scene in the book of Revelation. Now, it seems that, although we should say that the Bible isn't quite as specific as we would often hope in these matters, but it seems that believers will never appear before the great white throne judgment, that we already are glorified and with the Lord at that time. It appears instead that we face a different seat of judgment, not the great white throne of judgment, but we face what's called the judgment seat of Christ, or you may have sometimes heard it described as the bema seat, because bema is the Greek word here for judgment seat. Literally, it, it means a step, as in a raised platform or seat. This is where a Roman magistrate sat to act as a judge. It was like being hauled into court. It was the place where your actions were evaluated, where you were judged. And Paul says there's going to come a day when every believer stands before the judgment seat of Christ. How does that make you feel? What will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ? Paul says here in verse 10. First of all, he says that what we, will, what we have done will be judged. He says the things done in the body will be judged. But secondly, our motives for what we have done will be judged. He says according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, my friends, we must live with the understanding that what we have done for Jesus Christ will be judged. It will be judged. Did you know that it is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. And that's going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I don't think that the judgment seat of Christ should be used, though, primarily as like this heavy thing to scare you into serving the Lord. You're going to appear for the judgment seat of Christ. 
Better get busy. Now, you know, I think the better way to use the judgment seat of Christ, and I think this is how Paul meant it in the context, as an encouragement to those who are serving the Lord. You know what it says in Hebrews 6.10? It says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. Paul knows that the troubles he's experienced in his life are worth it because he's going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to be rewarded. There's no doubt about it. Friends, Paul went through a lot on this earth. He suffered greatly in serving God. He went through a lot for the sake of the Lord, and he will be rewarded. That's why Paul didn't walk around with this mopey, woe is me, oh, it's so hard, oh, I'm suffering. He asked Paul, he goes, hey, this is my light affliction. There's a far more eternal weight of glory coming for me. God's going to settle up. Boy, you just wait till I'm before that judgment seat of Christ. God will have a rich reward for me. Ah, what I'm going through now, it's nothing compared to that. Think of the athlete who just won the gold medal at the Olympics. And there he is up on the stand, you know, and they're, they're playing the national anthem of his nation and the flag is behind him and the crowd is cheering and the gold medal's around his neck. What do you think he's thinking? Man, did I waste my time on all those workouts, all that practice? No, he's saying, oh, this is great. He goes, man, those workouts were nothing. Because if I would have known it was this great, I would have worked out even harder. Because he knows he's being rewarded for what he's done. Paul knew that what he endured for Christ was worth it. Because he'd be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Then again, we must also understand that our motives for what we have done will be judged. You know, you can be doing the right things, at least outwardly, but with a wrong heart. You know, God will often use such a person. And God will often use such a person, even bring great blessing through them. And let me say, it's better to do the right thing with a wrong heart than to do the wrong thing with a wrong heart. At least you're halfway there if you're doing the right thing with the wrong heart. But friends, in the end, I think many people who thought they were performing some great service for the Lord We'll get to heaven and we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And they'll go, yeah, okay, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready for that reward. Yeah. And the Lord said, man, you didn't do anything that for me. You did it for you. You wanted the praise. You wanted the acclaim. You wanted the pats on the back. And look, they get, and God will show some video or something, you know, and they'll show you, and you go, oh, man, that's right. Remember when Jesus was saying, you know, when you receive the praise, man, you have your reward. There it is. And God will show the video. There's your reward. There's your reward. And you took it to heart, and that's why you were doing it. And Well, there you go. There you had your reward. And you say, wasn't there any reward left for me up here? God says, yeah. And he gives you a little pin or something, you know, because that's, (laughs) I don't know. He'll have something for you, for sure. You know, Paul presents essentially the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talks about a coming assessment of everybody's work before the Lord. And in that passage, he makes it clear that what we've done and our motive for doing it will be tested by fire. And what the fire will do is it'll burn away everything that's impure, everything that was done wrong or done for the wrong motive. And it's not that we'll be punished for what was not done rightly unto the Lord. That's not the idea. At the judgment seat of Christ, it's not like Jesus is is handing out punishment. All he's doing is handing out reward. 
But friends, what we've done wrongly or for a wrong motive or with the wrong heart, it's just as if we've never done anything. And some will get to heaven thinking that they've done great things for God, but they'll find out at the judgment seat of Christ that they really did nothing, nothing at all. So it's the privilege that we have as Christians to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It really means that everything we do now can be rewarded there. Now, I want you just right now for a moment, think about the things you have to do tomorrow. Okay, you know, I've got to go to work, I've got to wake up, I've got to get the kids ready for school, in the evening I have this, in the afternoon I have this. Do you realize that tomorrow you can do what the Lord sets before you and you can store up reward for yourself at the judgment seat of Christ by doing it as unto him, by doing it with the right heart, by doing it gloriously unto the Lord. Isn't that amazing? You remember, remember blue chip stamps? You go to the supermarket or to the thing. Or, my grandparents always used to get them at the bowling alley. You know, I used to think that was the neatest thing as a kid. I remember uh, filling up books full of blue chip stamps for my grandparents or my mom and dad. Because it was like, you know, you just buy everything regular and you get this bonus. Well, you know, when you do things with a right heart as unto the Lord, when you commit your ways to the Lord the way it says, that's the right way to do it anyway. But he promises you a bonus of a reward and a heavenly thing. And it's a lot better than stuff you could get from blue chip stamps. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) Friends, it's an eternal reward, an eternal weight of glory that God has for us. And, And you can store up reward for yourself just by serving the Lord diligently with the right heart and with the right attitude in what he's put before you right now. Now, I know some of you may be saying, well, pastor, uh, I don't think that it's right for us to be motivated by reward. We should be willing to serve God, and, and even if he damns us to hell, we should be praising him all the way. Now you say, well, listen, man, you're more holy than Paul. Because Paul was out there saying all the way, man, I want my reward. Paul was saying, I want that crown. I want to appear and come before the Lord. And I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to hear him say, enter in the joy of the Lord. And friends, that's not selfish. It's not, it's not strange. It's the proper reward for doing what you've done. You know, it's right for the, for the son to receive praise from the father when the son does something well. It's not inappropriate. It's not wrong for the son to look at his father and say, you know, to anticipate that praise, to anticipate that. that it's not wrong. It's right. That's what Paul says. I'm going to be rewarded. And he looked forward to that. So Then he concludes this little section that we'll conclude with tonight in verse 11 where he says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. What is it that we do know about the terror of the Lord? Let me tell you something. We do know this, that apart from the mercy of Jesus Christ, we are the righteous targets of the terror of the Lord. Do you realize that? If you're not in Christ, God's terror is directed against you. That should keep you up at night. Listen, man, if you're, if, if, you, if you're not a Christian, if you're not born again by the Spirit of God, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you knew what that meant, you wouldn't sleep a wink tonight. You'd be tortured in your heart and your soul knowing that you're the rightful target of the terror of the Lord. 
We know that apart from Jesus, we are the righteous targets of the terror of the Lord. But we also know that in Jesus, we have been delivered from the terror of the Lord. And I think that's the main sense in which Paul means it right here. When he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, I think he means main in the sense knowing that we've been delivered from it. Knowing that we've been spared from it. Knowing that we persuade men. What do we do? We persuade men to come to Jesus and to know what it means to be delivered from the terror of the Lord. Friends, I think Paul's idea here is not so much watch out for the terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord's going to get you. Watch out for it. I don't think that's the idea, though. I suppose there's a place for that message, right? There is a place for warning people about hell to come. I mean, that's, that's absolutely valid. But I think the message is not either. If I don't persuade men, I might face the terror of the Lord, so I better get to work. That's not the idea either. Instead, the message is, I have been delivered from the terror of the Lord, and you can be delivered to come to Jesus. You know, in truth, Jesus was the target of the terror of the Lord, so that it would not be directed at all those who trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Do you realize that, friends? Jesus was the target of the terror of the Lord. He bore the terror of the Lord. And knowing that, Paul says, we persuade men. You know, this should be the heart of everybody who shares the gospel. And I don't care if you're sharing it from a pulpit or over the kitchen table. Your goal in sharing the gospel should be to persuade men. Well, listen, friends, we're not out there just simply casting out ideas, not caring how men respond to them. No, we should be like Paul, who passionately desired that men and women would come to Jesus. We must intend in our hearts and in our words to persuade men. That's how I want to be with you. I don't want to just, well, you know, it's truth. Hey, believe it or not, I don't care. I do care. I want to persuade you. I want you to be persuaded to the truth of God. I want you to look at this and to read it and say, this is true, and I want to live my life for it. We persuade men. And he goes on to say in the rest of the verse, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. You know, Paul worked very hard to persuade men, did he not? But Paul knew at the same time that he didn't have to persuade God. You know, Paul knew, hey, God knows. God knows me. I don't have to persuade God about my message, about my ministry. God knows it. No, he was well known to God. But Paul also wished that he did not have to persuade the Corinthian Christians. You know, I think he's got his tongue a little bit in his cheek when he says, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Because the Corinthian Christians didn't have a lot of respect for Paul, did they? Paul says, you know, I wish you were well known. I wish you knew my heart. I wish I didn't have to persuade you about my message or about my ministry. He wanted to trust that his message and ministry were well known in the consciences of the Corinthians. You see, Paul could see the need to persuade the world of the person and work of Jesus and of his own integrity as a messenger of that good news. But he knew there was no need to persuade God, and it frustrated him that it was necessary to persuade the Corinthian Christians. 
Now, let me ask you a question here. What will it take to persuade you? What will it take to make you say, yeah, Lord, I give up. I'll just do what you want, Lord. I'll just do what you say. Can I offer one very persuasive thing to you this evening in conclusion? How about the Spirit of God given to your heart as a guarantee? Do you know the moving, the operation of the Holy Spirit in your life? Maybe you've taken it lightly. Maybe you've just kind of figured, well, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just, everybody has this kind of thing, and it's, it's just my little thing, or this or that. And maybe you just haven't considered it very carefully, or haven't cared very much. Friends, I want you to take seriously the operation of the Spirit of God in your life, and to realize that it means something, that it's a guarantee, a down payment of what the Lord promises He will do in your life. That should persuade you, shouldn't it? Shouldn't that be something to persuade you? Shouldn't that settle it in your heart that God is moving, and that God wants to move, that God will pour out His Spirit upon you? What will it take to persuade you? I trust that tonight people will leave here more persuaded than they were when they came in. So we're going to spend some time in worship, And uh, just waiting before the Lord, let's pray and ask God to just uh, move in our hearts. Father, we thank you here this evening for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And we ask, Lord God, for a rich moving of your Holy Spirit upon us. That you'd move and pour out your spirit of love and grace. We thank you, Lord. We love you so much. We just want to yield our hearts before you in love and in care. Father, give us a liberty before you now as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Give us a sense of what your Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Lord, we want to be persuaded of our eternal destiny and what difference it makes in our lives right now. We want to leave here excited, Lord, ready to live right now as if every day counts forever. I'm longing to hear those words, Lord. Well done, good and faithful sir. Father, I pray that you'd encourage the hurting heart tonight. The heart that walked in here feeling as if they might give up. Lord, let them know that it really is just a short time that we have right now to trust you and to love you in the midst of such circumstances. And that our light affliction can't be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Thank you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.